Hello all of you my lovely and gorgeous people. My name is Maximai Badev and you're listening to Let's Talk. Last week were the confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, known as ACB, who was appointed by President Trump to fulfill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Supreme Court seat. This process has drew a lot of scrutiny and criticism, both for the personal views of Judge Amy Coney Barrett on issues like abortion and civil rights, and a lot of people being afraid that she might overturn them, and also the hypocrisy of the Republican Party for nominating Supreme Court judge this close to the election when they refused to do so last time for Barack Obama in 2016. So this episode I invited my friend Corey Gibbs who is a student of tax law to talk about the Supreme Court and while I had Corey who knows taxes we also talked about the tax reform and Trump taxes because even though Trump got COVID and we all forgot about that I didn't forget about it because there's some pretty good tea up in those taxes and I do want to say that This was my very first time recording, not at my house, we recorded at Corey's crib, and I didn't take into consideration the difference in acoustics in different people's houses, so I had to summon the craftsmanship of podcast mixing to make sure that the sound is good. But there are still moments when there are problems with the sound, and I do apologize for that, and I hope that you still listen, because the conversation is very interesting, and important. So thank you very much and enjoy the episode. My guest today is a student of tax law, future tax lawyer who's going to be helping doing me my taxes. Please give a warm welcome to Corey Gibbs. Hey, everyone that's listening. I don't know if I'll be doing your taxes. You can listen that to the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's always nice to have lawyer friends. You know, I mean, you know, we're there to help when you need us. <laughs> sure, sure. How are you? I mean, I'm doing fine. I like to tell everyone that, you know, Zoom fatigue and stuff mm-hmm. in school, just not being able to see people in person anymore. Kind of like stuck at home, like it's just everyone's kind of miserable, but I think we're all on the same page with it. So we're all in this together. Yeah, I know. I was telling someone in a meeting earlier that I feel like if anything comes out of this, it's probably that we're all going to have a greater sense of empathy, maybe, because it's like, we're all kind of in it together, going through it, so we can all understand the places that we're at. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, what your background is. So, I'm originally from Alabama. I'm from Phoenix City specifically, which, if you just, like, Google it, it's, like, known for being the original Sin City in, like, the 1950s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very bad, right? Yeah. Lots of gambling, prostitution, all that kind of stuff. Got shut down by the military. Fun little backstory, right? Who knew Alabama got that in her? Well, she does. She <laughs> does. She's wild. But um, She is free. Yeah, so then I went to Auburn, studied anthropology, minored in women's studies and political science, and now I'm up at New York Law School. I'm the Student Bar Association president. Yeah, that's my president. (laughs) Yeah, but um, you don't really major in law school, but based on the courses I'm taking, you can tell that I'm interested in tax law, and I'll probably be looking into getting a master's of tax law in the future. 
can you explain to me how does one decide to go into tax law? Because to me that sounds like second to most boring law. The first most boring law is contract law. So coming from Alabama, where we have one of the highest combined state and local sales tax, so it's a burden on a lot of the people that are impoverished in Alabama. Say, for instance, you go to McDonald's to get a dollar sweet tea, which is something a lot of people in Alabama do, including myself. is something I did a lot. Sounds like there, a stereotype. <laughs> well, sweet tea is delicious. True. You go to McDonald's for a dollar sweet tea, but you always show up with a dollar and nine cents because the tax comes out to be nine cents. That's almost a tenth of the entire bill. Right. Yeah, so it kind of adds up over time, but... We also have the second lowest property tax of all the states. It's kind of like the people that are impacted the most are high sales tax or those that probably don't own property. Mm-hmm. So they don't get to see the tax benefits of living in Alabama. They only see the tax burden. Right. And that's something that stuck out to me a lot coming from undergrad where I personally didn't have any property that I owned. And I know plenty of my friends didn't. And most of the people I still know in Alabama don't necessarily own property. Same in New York, honey. Absolutely, especially in the city. Then I moved to New York, wasn't interested in tax law, but I came here because I wanted to do human rights, and I knew I was super close to the UN. Not particularly the track I'm on right now, but I knew I wanted to know something about taxes, so I took a tax class and kind of realized this was something I wanted to do, both because I enjoy tax law, but also because I could see myself doing more with it in the future to give back to the community. But that's far future. Right. We can't even think about near future because, bro, every day something changes. And what is your political background? So I come from a family of conservatives, but I myself am fairly, fairly liberal. Is the New York. New York got to you. I don't even know if it's the New York. I was pretty to the left even in Alabama, which I think there's a lot of people left of center in Alabama. Mm-hmm. But back home, a lot of people tend to vote with how their family votes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you ask them on the issues, odds are they might actually agree with you, but they're not going to vote that way because they've never done it. It's the whole, I've always voted Republican, so I'm going to do that again. I mean, that sounds very interesting because a lot of people, you know, when they think hardcore Republican, the first state that comes up to their mind is Alabama. A lot of people, especially here in New York, because people in New York have a very tilted perspective of other states, but Alabama is always the kind of like poor, stupid, racist, sexist, homophobic, child-fucking conservative. Well, I mean, it's one of those things when you come from Alabama, like, I understand other people's point of view of that, but now that I live in New York, I see it here as well. Like, it's not sunshine and rainbows the second you leave Alabama. It's just, even in Alabama, you say, at least we're not Mississippi. (laughs) You go to Georgia, they say, at least we're not Alabama. (laughs) And I think part of the thing is, no matter where you go, you're always going to say, at least I'm not ill. And I mean, I think we see that even in terms of national politics. It's like, at least we're not this other country right you keep saying i'm not going to deal with my own problems because i know my problems aren't as bad as someone else's so yeah alabama for instance has a lot of issues like our education system could be better we can talk about how taxes could do that Mm -hmm. 
we could talk about housing, something mm-hmm. literally taxes could fix so much in Alabama, not that I'm harping on that too, too much. But, I mean, housing could be better in New York City, for instance. Oh, for sure. Like, I just, in one of my classes, we were talking about NYCHA, and hearing some of the things just from that class alone. For those who don't know, NYCHA is New York Housing Authority, so basically they're responsible for all the low-income housing, Section 8, affordable housing, all that good stuff for the poor people. Yeah, so it's just something back home, everyone goes to the church, but the plank in someone's eye. Mm-hmm. I have a splinter in mine, and you're going to tell me all about it when you have a plank in your own. So, right. yeah, Alabama has numerous problems, but so does everyone else. And it's kind of just a way to ignore your own problem, even when I do it for, say, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I'm just avoiding my own issues, right. you know? So, I don't know. There's truth to it, but there's also a little bit of look at yourself also. Right. So, if people in Georgia say at least we're not Alabama, and people in Alabama say at least we're not Mississippi, then what does Mississippi say? They probably say at least we're not Louisiana. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going down like Yeah, a... you just go to your neighbor. At least we're not them. <laughs> right, right, right. But, I mean, everyone has their issues, and I think we need to address them. You brought up kind of an interesting point relating the quote-unquote competition between states and, you know, federal competition between countries. I always find that when people say, like in New York, they say, oh, go back to your own state. I'm like, that sounds to me just as bad as people say, go back to your own country. Like, this is America. We all are Americans here. Whether other states have different perspectives, maybe nationally, like are more leading Republican, more leading Democrat, at the end of the day, everybody's a human being, and they don't live their everyday life by their political beliefs. Everybody's trying to be a good person, have a good job, take care of their kids, and try to leave some kind of legacy behind them. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you're from Alabama or New York. I mean, it does matter politically, especially, you know, for me being a proudly gay person, I would probably be less comfortable living in Alabama. But maybe that's my own preconceived notion of a state that I've never been to. So there's definitely more conservative and more liberal portions to every state that you go to. For instance, in Alabama, you can always go to Huntsville, Birmingham, and it's not necessarily that they're the pinnacle of liberalism, right. but it's kind of the thing of cities tend to lean more liberal, right. and it's because there's so many different people, and people there get to experience other people's mm-hmm. presence. Right. So it's like, even if you were to go upstate New York, you're liable to see more conservative areas, or even in California, I want to say it's... Orange County? Well, not even Orange County, but there's like southeastern California where they're always talking about like seceding because (laughs) they're just like blood red Republicans living in this super blue liberal state. So it just depends on where you go in the state. So I don't think saying any part of your identity isn't welcome in an entire state because the state's really large. There's plenty of places you can go. It's a pretty big state. Well, talking about politics, if anybody forgot, we are in a very heated and tense and divisive election. And actually, as we are recording this podcast, we have Joe Biden's town hall on mute next to us. You know, I mean, I know there is another town hall tonight, but TBH, there's only one town hall. The other one is a rally for a lunatic dictator wannabe. So I want to ask you, Corey, going into this election, and, you know, this might have changed for you over time because this election season, it had more up and down than Christina Aguilera's career, let's say that. And what are some of the issues that were important and are important to you in this election? And who were you thinking of voting if you haven't already voted? 
I actually already sent in my absentee ballot. Yeah. That is a mess in and of itself. I had like three envelopes. I had to do my own postage, find two witnesses in the middle of the pandemic. So that was a mess. But got it sent out, voted for Joe Biden, also voted for Doug Jones. We're going to hope and pray. <laughs> Doug Jones is a Democratic senator from Alabama, which had caused quite a stir because, as we talked about, Alabama is pretty Republican. So for them to vote somebody who's a Democrat was a big thing. But, you know, he won against somebody who was an accused pedophile. So there you go. But this time, it seems like he's not going to win because he's running against college football coach, which is like yeah. one of the proudest things that Alabama has. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'm just going to hope for the best. Right. And prepare for the worst. Yep, always, especially after 2016. I do not count my eggs before they hatch. Yeah, I'm just going to hope he gets that done. But in terms of things that I'm concerned about, naturally as someone that studies tax law, in 2017 there was the TCJA, which is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Mm -hmm. And basically what really bothered me about the first presidential debate was the way that Donald Trump kind of threw on to Joe Biden and Obama, saying that they were the ones that gave all these low tax rates to corporations, but it was him. The 21% rate that corporations pay is because of Trump. It's not because of Obama. I mean, there's plenty of things that Obama and Biden didn't do so hot. Right. But you just can't keep throwing blame at other people, especially when it's something that you signed into law. Right. That's something that's on my mind, because if Joe Biden does win, Tax Act could very likely disappear. And I mean, it should. Right. Given it'll be more work for me because I'll have to relearn. Right. But that's fine. That was a contested issue because in the first debate, Biden said that he's going to eliminate tax cuts. And then in the vice presidential debate, that was one of the quote unquote, I guess, weak points for Kamala when Mike Pence tried to tell her, are you going to take away the tax cuts that brought, I think, from 4000 to $6,000 income tax to American families. And then, you know, there was a kind of a heated exchange. Well, I will say, look, I could pull the tax code right now. But in terms of, like, progressive tax... And you guys don't see it, but this is a thick book. You could kill a bitch with this book. But if you look at it, see how there's only one, two, three, four, five tax brackets Mm -hmm. in section 1A? But if you look at 1J, which is taxable years 2018 through 2025, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 different tax brackets. So the thing is, you can technically say that this tax act was more progressive in the sense that it progresses more. Now, in terms of being left progressive, maybe not. But not everything is horrible about the TCJA. But right. that's gay big tax cuts to corporations, which I think most people aren't fans of because mm-hmm. are you benefiting from that? Right. No. The fact that yeah. Amazon is paying zero dollars in corporate taxes doesn't really make my life much better or easier to be age. I think the thing is we always need to ask who is benefiting from not only like us paying our taxes but where the government spending is going. So, for instance, you look at these checks that got sent out earlier in the year, but you haven't seen another one. Like, we all benefited from that. Right. Because one thing, if you're saying, okay, well, why aren't people working? And why do we want to keep giving unemployment out in such high numbers? Well, as someone that was working at a bar slash restaurant over the summer, the only way I get paid is if someone has money that they're willing to spend. Right. And they're going to come in and buy, for instance, sushi, which is where I was working. If I am only have a little bit of money, the last thing on my mind is let me go buy sushi. But for some reason, the government's telling me, 
no unemployment, go work. And I go work at a sushi restaurant. Right. How do I get my money if other people don't have money? Right. So it's kind of like a weird little loop where it's go work, but we're not going to give people money to spend to give you money if you actually do work. So when I pay my taxes at the start of the year, I want it to go to people. Like I want it to go to unemployment. I want it to come to these checks that go back to me. Because if I am in a position where I can work, Mm -hmm. I need people to be able to spend money in order for me to make the money. So... I think we all need to be asking ourselves, like, when we look at our paychecks and we see the taxes getting pulled out, where is that money going? Mm -hmm. Is it going to us, the taxpayers, or is it going to subsidies that are going to these corporations? Is it going to line the pockets of Ted Cruz? Like, where is it going? Right. Always ask for the receipts. Right. I mean, my thing is, with that act that brought down so many tax cuts is that one of the things that Trump promised in his 2016 campaign is that he's going to lower the deficit. But with the fact that he has cut down the tax revenue and increased the military budget, debt of the United States actually doubled. And now we have even higher debt. And, you know, considering that this year with the pandemic, the government needed to pass a multi-trillion deal to put money back into the economy. Now the debt is even bigger. It makes me think, isn't the only way to help with national debt is to increase taxes in the richer corporations so we could kind of recoup that federal budget. So I'm going to pull out my handy dandy tax code again. Yeah, the book that can kill a bitch. So we're right back at section 1J. Right. So if you'll look, where does it say that the tax bracket stops? $600,000. Yeah, so that's where the top tax bracket is. But we know that there's lots of millionaires and even billionaires these days. So perhaps the tax bracket itself could be more progressive. Right. So there's like endless ways you could probably revise the tax code. Mm -hmm. And we could benefit the people instead of warmongering, instead of lending out money to these corporations that don't need it. I mean, how many small businesses have gone under over the course of this pandemic? And it's because why are you going to go to the mom and pop shop when Walmart hasn't had to increase their prices. Right. The mom and pop shops have probably had to because they don't have the extra help or maybe they don't have the same supply. This is kind of like what I envision and imagine our country being built on is the small businesses Mm -hmm. and the people. So it's kind of like nonsense to me that for some reason we pay in to basically a giant corporation that is our government and it's not helping us at times. So it's helping the corporations for ironically not being taxed. Well, I'm not even going to say it's completely the fault of the corporations because no, I feel like it's the fault of the government. Honestly, I understand where the corporations are coming from. Every, nobody wants to pay taxes. And I understand where the corporations are coming from as greedy as it is. But the fact that we have people in Washington who are falling for it and allowing to be lobbied and are passing all of these laws, it's wrecking on the economy and on the American people. Yeah, so it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't want to say Walmart is a big bad. It's just one of those things where Walmart didn't make the tax code. Right. I mean, Trump apparently doesn't know what's in it, but he signed his name on it. But it's just one of these things where we need to start asking the people to do better. And I think, for instance, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the people that they are going to put in positions of power Mm -hmm. will do that. Right. So I guess since we're on the subject of taxes, I do want to ask you this question because it's been on my mind. New York Times have finally published some kind of a 
summary analysis of Trump's taxes, which have been like, you know, like the ghost of Hamlet. Nobody ever saw it. And I've read that and I found the information in them pretty damning for two reasons. One, it actually showed that Trump is not as of a good businessman as he is. And that was his entire selling point of his image. I'm a great businessman. It's time to run this country as a business. But then it turns out that he's not that good of a businessman because he's been filing zero dollars on income tax. And the only way you do that is when you lose money. And then that brings me to my second point. If he lost that much money, which is approximately half a billion dollars that he owes to somebody, I think that the people should know whom the president owes money to because if he owns that much money, half a billion dollars is a lot of money. If the people that he owns the money to have influence on him and if he needs to go, because I've read also that his debt is expiring in a couple of years, so he will have to go to the banks to try to get a loan, but being the president of the United States, that puts him in a very unique power where he can do personal favors for the banks and financial institutions that he owes money to at the risk of the American people. So what do you think of Trump's taxes? I haven't seen his taxes. Well, nobody you know, has. I know, but, well, supposedly someone has. Well, supposedly they, somebody the New York Times has. Yeah, because they wrote about it. So given any assumptions I have are based off of the report, not from actually seeing anything. And basically, a lot of people asked me in particular, they were like, is this tax fraud? And, I mean, unless there's other documents that show that he lied, right. then no. But... What I am seeing is that he's probably a terrible business man. Yep. I was going to say business owner, but... He shouldn't be owning business. Jimmy Carter sold his peanut farm to run for president, but that, you know, because Jimmy Carter was a boring yeah. person. The biggest T, I guess, is given I haven't done anything criminal related with mm-hmm. taxes, so I can't speak too much to it, but the whole consulting issue with Ivanka seems odd to me, mostly because it sounds like he's trying to avoid maybe like some estate tax type stuff, but also something I can't say for certain. Right. Well, isn't that also one of the reasons that he moved his residence from New York to Florida so that he can pay less taxes? Maybe. When that news broke, my mind was more so because Florida's a swing state. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, estate taxes of Florida. Right. I mean, a lot of people do later in life move to Florida, and it's probably because of the tax situation down there. Like senior um, citizens? Yeah. I mean, Trump uh, is a senior citizen. Whether he knows it or not, that man is old. If you wipe off all the orange and you, like, not comb his hair, he looks like an old man. Did you see him when he, like, left the hospital? Girl. In those videos? Yeah. So, I mean, you got to see a little bit of him without his makeup, but... He looked pale as a frozen fish at the Chinese supermarket. Yeah, he kind of matched his hair a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> his hair didn't look as orange anymore. I guess he used the same spray on his face as does on his hair. I mean, mm-hmm. we love a thrifty queen, but not like that. Okay. But yeah, so the one sketchy thing about it was the whole Ivanka being like a consultant and the consultant fees. But other than that, I just think it shows that he's a bad businessman, which is something he ran his whole campaign on. But I don't even think that's particularly news, because when you think about all the failed businesses he's had in the past, you have, what was it, Trump Steaks, Trump Vodka, Trump University. Trump Airlines. I didn't even know about that one. (laughs) There you go. It was bankrupt before we even got a chance to know about it. (laughs) I mean, there's just a laundry list of things that he's failed at, and it's kind of like, I'm not surprised by this, but I think... A lot of people are still looking for, like, the silver bullet that's going to get rid of this monster. Right. And I don't think it's his taxes. 
I mean, it's definitely something interesting to see how small loan of a million dollars has right. turned into loss upon loss. Right. I mean, I think a silver bullet is voting the motherfucker out. Okay. But also, if we're talking about... Nobody wants to read taxes. When all that story broke out and, you know, me being a self-proclaimed journalist, I had to read all those articles about his taxes. And, you know, there was one that came out last year, which talked about, you know, how he lost almost a billion dollars between 1985 and 1995. And this year earlier, it kind of showed how his tax situation between 1995 and 2015. And then there was a follow-up that showed in 2016 how when he was already president, there's been some shady stuff happening with Vegas and some kind of companies that had had money funneling through them, but had like nobody on the payroll, which means that how are you being a corporation or organization that doesn't have anybody working for it? But that's why I'm talking to you because I don't know jack shit about taxes, as most Americans don't. <laughs> so, do you still feel that president's taxes should be an important issue going forward? So, I think a big issue for most Americans, even at my school, everyone says we just want more transparency. And that's just with the school. So, right. like, even for me as an American, I want more transparency from my leaders. Like, yeah, who's funding? Like, where are you getting your money? How did you get here? I think it's something we should all know. Do you have foreign backers? Like, I don't necessarily think it's end of the road. I think there needs to be, like, some honesty. Like, let us know who you are. Not just Trump, but I think a lot of people. They aren't forthcoming with that. Like, and I think most Americans would probably be understanding, maybe not Trump at this point, but I think most people are understanding if you're honest with them. And I think the tax returns, like the whole issue of presidents releasing them, mm -hmm. I think it's a matter of being honest with the American people. Right. Like, is the IRS going to lie to me? Right. I would hope not. On the subject of IRS, my question is, IRS has been under so much scrutiny with Trump's taxes. Why won't they make some kind of a public statement about his taxes? I mean, I personally don't work for the IRS, so right. I don't know their ethic rules, but... It will be great if you did. <laughs> but I think that goes with most stuff like taxes or health when you go to your doctor. There's some things that are between you and particular people. Right. And that's kind of the thing with the tax return situation. Nobody has to give you their tax returns. It's clearly not public information because... If it was, we'd have his tax returns. We wouldn't be asking him to release them. I'd love to release them, but I've been under audit. They've been auditing like nobody else in history. IRS hates me. Yeah, but it's kind of like, apparently, you can release these while you're being audited. No one's stopping yeah. him. So it's just another one of those things where you can tell he's lying to us. Right. And a lot Trump? Of, <laughs> lying? <laughs> yeah. Never. Yeah, but it's kind of like, part of me is like, why are you lying? But I think... The T is that he's just a terrible businessman. Right. And he doesn't want anyone to know. But how do you not want us to know something we already know? Well, because, you know, we might know as college-educated people who live in New York. When did you come to New York? In 2018. 2018. I've been living in New York since 2012, and I knew Trump's name very well before he ran for president. And I live in South Brooklyn, and in the area where I live, there's a lot of like apartment complexes. Not mine, but the one across the street is called Trump Village. It was built by Fred Trump, who was not a nice person. I mean, anybody who wears that kind of a thick mustache, you already know there's something fucked up going on there. And I'm saying this as a proud person who's wearing a mustache. 
<laughs> Interesting because when Trump ran for president, I was like, everybody knows he's not a good businessman. Like anybody from New York, from New Jersey, saw how he bankrupted a casino, which is like, how the fuck do you bankrupt a casino? But to me, it was just absolutely mind-boggling that there's a big chunk of America that didn't know about this. And when I was asking why, I kind of realized that you know there's a lot of people in there who are uneducated, don't possess critical thinking, and who kind of take everything they see on TV, on Fox News, for its face value. So, you know, when you say that we already knew that, you and I might have already knew that. But apparently his base is either ignorant of that fact, or they've made a conscious decision to fully accept it, because nothing that he can say or do is wrong to them, because their main point is advancing their agenda and owning the libs. Well, I think it's the latter. But, Probably. Um, because I don't think anyone doesn't know who this man is at this point, just because he's been in our face since 2015. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone doesn't know who he is. I think it's a conscious choice at this point to vote for him, to like him for that matter. Mm-hmm. So taxes, not that big of a deal. I think it's an interesting story mm-hmm. and a shame that he just won't show his taxes. Right. Because you would imagine, even if that was the whole story, like everything that the New York Times reported, if it's untrue, then show us your tax returns. That is. But, or is there something worse? Like, why are you still withholding? I think that's more of the tea for me is what else is there to hide? The fact that it's correct, Mm -hmm. that you did lose all this money, that you are in debt. What is the purpose of hiding at this point? You are literally the president of the United States. You couldn't get impeached. There was an actual phone call. We had the tapes. Still couldn't get impeached. You got elected, and that's after the tapes of you claiming to grab women by their genitals gets released. Yeah, at what point? Even for him, like, he should accept at this point, like, he's not going to lose his base. No. Now, does that necessarily mean that people won't come out that didn't vote Mm -hmm. in 2016? And vote for him this time? Yeah, because if it was between Hillary Clinton, Trump, and Mm non-voting, non-voting would have won in, like, 40-something states. Non-voting definitely won. I remember looking back, only 50% of people voted in 2016. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 26%, but Trump won the election by 24%. 24% of the eligible voters decided the fate of this country going forward for four years in 2016, and that just goes to show how fucked up it is, and it's very important that we vote the motherfucker out, because I am tired of being held hostage by a minority. We are going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Yes, the most exciting issue, so stay tuned. And we're back with Corey Gibbs. Corey, as somebody who studies law, I am pretty sure the Supreme Court has been an important issue for you in any election, but it hasn't been to the rest of Americans. And, you know, it wasn't on a ballot. I mean, it kind of was, you know, before that, you know, the president appoints judges and we really wanted to elect a new president so we can fulfill a new Supreme Court seat. But unfortunately, and I want to honor the legacy of one of the most spectacular American icons, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg from Brooklyn, New York. She about to get a statue up in Brooklyn. And it's hard to find words to describe Ruvita Ginsburg. Like, talented, brilliant, incredible, amazing, show-stopping, spectacular, never the same, totally unique, completely not ever been done before, because 
she brought to the Supreme Court cases, especially about minorities and women's rights that have never been heard in front of the Supreme Court. So I just wanted to honor her legacy before we talk about the next bitch. Well, she was an icon, no doubt. I think everyone knows exactly who she is. Even people that are not from the U.S. know who she is. So I think her impact was even greater than she probably knew. I think one of the most interesting things, taking a constitutional law class, we had a case and it was like, oh, this case went for the Supreme Court and surprise, RBG was the attorney in the case. And it was arguing for equal rights between men and women, but it was her arguing on behalf of men. This case was about purchasing beer. Women could purchase beer at the age of 18, but men could not. Really? Yeah, and it was because, oh, men are super reckless drivers. They shouldn't be buying alcohol at the age of 18, but women aren't reckless like men. Wait, that's not what I was taught growing up. Well, this is what the law was at the time, and apparently she took this case on behalf of men and argued for the equality of the sexes. And I just found that very interesting. Sometimes you can fight for yourself by fighting for the other side. I think it's interesting because she kind of saw that there is no other side. She saw that there's the right side, there's justice and truth, and then there's the wrong side. She was on the right side, and she's going to be remembered for much longer than Donald Trump and for definitely better reasons than Donald Trump. But with her unfortunate passing at the age of 87 from pancreatic cancer, she was really holding in there. She was like, I need to stay there until the election. But unfortunately, she passed and the Republicans, being the hypocritical glory holes that they are, rushed to nominate and fulfill a Supreme Court seat less than a month away from the election when they refused to do the same thing for Barack Obama when Anthony Scalia died in February, you know, almost six months before the election and he nominated Merrick Garland and the Senate Republicans with <laughs> Mitch McConnell, whom I called the turtle, just denying Obama even the hearings of Merrick Garland. You know, I'm working with my Mitch McConnell impression. The American people should nominate the next Supreme Court justice. And now this time, they have absolutely no problem deciding what is best for the American people. So, how do we feel about the whole process? And how do we feel about Amy Coney Barrett, which sounds like a drag I don't think it's a matter of us saying, is it going to happen? I think it's more so a matter of when, and it seems to be a lot sooner than we'd like. They have all the cards in their hand. Well, I think the Judiciary Committee, chaired by Lady G, Lindsey Graham announced that the vote in the Judiciary Committee on her nomination is going to be October 22nd, which is next week from when we're recording this podcast, and we can expect that there'll be a vote on the Senate floor before November. Yeah, so I wasn't going to watch the hearings as much as I probably would have otherwise, because it does personally feel a little illegitimate in the sense of, it doesn't matter how anyone feels about her, she's going to be pointed. Right. And they did it so quickly. Kavanaugh took... Well, Kavanaugh's hearings were much longer because they had to do yeah. an FBI investigation and it was Chrissy. But you have to do an or, FBI. Yeah. But that's the thing. I know, I know Gorsuch took 62 days from announcement to confirmation. Yeah, so it's just a matter of you knew it was going to happen. Right. You know, there's no argument. There's no what do the American people think. It doesn't matter because they're going to push her through regardless. Right. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't seen clips, which are troublesome. I think the big one for me that just threw me for a loop was super precedent, whatever that means. So Mm -hmm. in law, there's cases that have precedent. 
i.e. there's something that has been decided. And part of the goal of our legal system is to be predictable. That I show up to court, I know what the law is, I know what the courts have said, and I expect a certain outcome. Based on the precedent. Yeah, so you don't show up to court expecting to, like, redefine income, for instance. Mm -hmm. Because there's a case on that. There's even the tax code. But now she's saying that there's super precedent. She said Brown v. Board of Education is super precedent, while something like Roe v. Wade is just regular precedent. Yeah, so, when I heard that, I was confused because, as you know, anybody who studied history, Brown versus the Board of Education actually broke the precedent because the precedent has been established by Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson was in the 1870s. It was after the Civil War and basically established the notion of separate but equal. And then that was the norm until Brown v. Board of Education, which shut down the idea of separate but equal. Like, the precedent has been that it's legal to discriminate on people based on their racial identity, and that was the Dred Scott decision, and that was the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, and Brown versus Board of Education kind of reversed that. So I found it very interesting that she saw Brown versus Board of Education as super precedent while that was breaking the precedent, but Roe v. Wade, which has been established as a precedent by other Supreme Court cases, she doesn't find as a super precedent. Well, her argument was that there are still cases challenging Roe v. Wade, while there are not cases challenging Brown v. Board of Education. To an extent, that's true, but that doesn't change the fact that it's precedent, and that I have never taken a class where it's, oh, this is super precedent. So at what point does a case become super precedent? Does it depend on the cases that are coming up in the courts? Because if it does, then that means nothing can ever truly be super precedent, because... At no point do I have the foresight to know what's going to be in the court system a year from now. What if someone does check Brown v. Board of Education a year from now? Suddenly it's not super precedent anymore because it's being challenged. So that whole concept was complete nonsense. And then she decided to talk about how she couldn't apply law to hypotheticals. That's all we do in law school. Right. Like, you show up at a law exam, there's a hypothetical, and you apply the law to it. And I know there was a TikTok of law students like reacting to that yeah, yeah, yeah. particular statement. Who is this woman? You look at her previous confirmation hearings and she's like doing speeches and taking money from people that believe in criminalizing homosexuality. She is not reflective of the people that she is going to be binding the law to. So this whole confirmation process, I did not want to watch it. I didn't want to care about it enough. It's definitely going to impact all of us. But at the same time, like, I didn't want to make myself angry about something that's completely out of my control. But I can't ignore the fact that there's clips coming out and I see her talking about super precedent. Mm -hmm. Or she's not willing to say that climate change is real. I can't avoid the hearings. They're there. And who knows, maybe one day I'll be at the Supreme Court before her. Who knows how that'll be, but it's going to happen. And it's not great, but I will say that Roe v. Wade is kind of like a hot topic with her because everyone's like, she's going to overturn it. What's going to happen to abortions? So something to hold on to is if you are in a state that does have it on the statutes, like it is a law of the state that it is protected, you're going to be fine. Like in New York, we have legislation that protects safe abortions in New York. But if you're in a state where it isn't protected, Alabama, Alabama then your options are a little different. And I think if we live in a society that we believe we do, which is one where the majority of Americans believe that abortion is a right that women should have, 
Even and people who consider themselves pro-life, they believe that if there is a case of incest or rape or when it's dangerous to the baby's life or the mother's life, it should be objectionable thing for a woman to have an abortion. And I honestly don't understand how in 2020 we still have this conversation while the rest of the developed world has been accepted, signed, sealed, delivered, done with this. But I think it gives us a call to action. Right. right. So I and you and everyone else may not have any power or authority to say that she doesn't get to be the next Supreme Court justice. She doesn't get to replace RPG. But what it does call us to action and something that we can do is that we can press our own state legislatures to start putting our rights into the law. Like, right. Codify this. Give us protections. So, for instance, over the summer, there was a case where it provided federal protection from discrimination of LGBT workers. Yeah, a groundbreaking case. Yeah, well, that's not the case in every state, right? In New York, you're protected. On a federal basis, you are now protected, but in some states, you're not. So this just means that if we truly care about these rights that we currently have, we need to start pushing our state legislatures, which means voting in local elections, voting in state elections. And getting these people to protect our rights at the local and state level. So, yeah, it means more work, but it's just something we're going to have to do. And I guess another glimmer of hope in this situation, anyways, is that when Sandra O'Connor was appointed as a justice to the Supreme Court, a lot of people thought she spelled out the end for Roe v. Wade because her beliefs in abortion were that it was something important. And when she had the opportunity to get rid of Roe v. Wade, get rid of the right to abortion, she didn't. Right. Why, though? Well, I mean, I can't answer why she did it. But I think being a judge, when the case comes before you, it isn't, do you agree with abortion? Do you think this should be a right? It's usually someone's case. So in Roe v. Wade, it was a woman who was seeking an abortion. And when you go to court, you don't just say, hey, my client wants an abortion. You say, this is my client, a woman who has been raped, or a woman that has this family situation at home where it's just not practical. Or maybe her health is going to be impacted by having a child. She doesn't have the financial stability to even go through pregnancy, medical bills. So I can't speak to why O'Connor made her decisions, but I can say that when Barrett's on the court, she's going to have to face the people whose rights she's taken away. So as we talk about the fact that we, going through this pandemic all together, building a sense of empathy, she's going to have to face these people. Mm-hmm. She's going to have to see them. She's going to hear their stories. And I can't say that'll change her mind, but I think hearing someone's story about why they feel they need an abortion, why they don't want to be discriminated at work, why they want to adopt a child, hearing those stories resonates with me. I can grasp your emotions and your feelings. Maybe she'll be able to do that too. And that's all I can do right now is hope for her to have that same level of empathy. It's interesting that you said that because I watched some of the hearings. Again, I didn't want to watch all 12 hours of that circus, but I you watched... You didn't want to give her your time. Well, I watched... <laughs> on Wednesday, I watched the entirety of... You gave her your time. I didn't give her the time. I gave the American government, the, the American system, the time because I believe this is not about her and she's no RBG and she's not going to have the same legacy that even if she tries because she came through the door that RBG opens for her in a way. I'm talking about empathy and, you know, minority race, there was an interaction between her and Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, who's a black man, and dating Rosario Dawson, fun fact. And 
she was kind of asked repeatedly throughout the hearings, is she racist? And she goes, I'm not racist, I have two black children. On the record, she has seven children, two of them are adopted. The youngest one has special needs, which was pushed by the media on us a lot to show that, you know, she is empathetic to people with disabilities and people of different color. But when approached by Booker, and they had a very pleasant interaction because Booker is a very nice person to everybody. And he literally started reading her all the statistics about the mistreatment of African Americans, voting restrictions, like, you know, like all the tests that African Americans had to take during Jim Crow, like counting the jelly beans in a jar. And the statistics that he was giving her, there was a moment when you can look at her face and she looks deeply affected by it. But she looks like this is all new information for her. And Booker even goes at one point, he goes like, I can see that you're surprised by the statistics. Which goes to show that having black children does not mean you're empathetic to black people or understand the issues that people of color are facing in this country. And there was a moment when on a personal level, I kind of empathized with her. She seemed personable. She seemed calm. It was definitely not the Kavanaugh hearings, which were a circus. Especially when Kavanaugh was so angry that he was spitting and then Kamala Harris made him cry. I mean, that was the best thing that happened in the past four years. You go, Kamala. But, you know, she... It was very civil, surprisingly. You know, it's a very rare display of civility in our politics. But when you listen to how she was answering the question, it was highly problematic. Because, again, the hypotheticals, you know, there was a point when somebody asked her, can't the president delay the election? And she goes, oh, I can't focus on the hypothetical. And I was like, what do you mean hypotheticals? No, the president cannot move the election. That's the law. That's in the Constitution, as far as I understand. That made me really question how she sees the law, which is very interesting because she claims to be an originalist. But then she doesn't really believe in the aspects of Constitution that are maybe not favorable to the president who nominated her. And, you know, as you pointed out, you know, when Kamala Harris asked her, it was very interesting the way Kamala Harris built it up, because Kamala is great. She is a former attorney. If you listen to the last episode of Let's Talk, we went into detail about Kamala Harris. She asked her question, do you believe that cigarettes cause cancer? And she was like, yes, that's on a package. And then she asked her some other question, which was very like, yes. And then Kamala asked her, do you believe climate change is real? And she goes, look, I am not going to answer it on the question that is controversial. And Kamala was like, you don't even have to answer the question. The fact that you think that climate change is a political debate just goes to show how you feel about climate change. And then, you know, there was that infamous moment when she was asked to name five freedoms. She goes like, I don't know. And it's funny that she left out the freedom to petition and to protest again because she was nominated by Trump. So her answers made no sense to me, a lot of them. My question to you is, when you hear somebody say that they are an originalist, and how do you feel in general about the philosophy of originalism? So I'm not a fan. We don't stand. <laughs> but it's kind of one of those things where when the justices pull out a dictionary from like the 1700s, what did this mean back then? There's a lot of things that they didn't have in the 1700s that we have now. And I think that's a huge thing to consider because I don't wear wig to hide my syphilis or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh, that should come back in style. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, that isn't the world we live in. And for some reason, the people that are hyping her up, for instance, something that I find odd is they're like, oh, yes, the founding fathers. Well, the founding fathers didn't have like AK-47s. But for some reason, you think that's protected, but the rights of minorities are not. Right. So I don't know. If if you're going to be all about originalism, just be all about it. Right. But I don't think it's a hot take. Right. I think the beauty of Constitution by default is the fact that it was such a brilliantly introspective document, and that's why it has the amendment process, which is, you know, when somebody says that the original for the Constitution, I'm like, so what about the amendment process, which allows people to add amendments to change the Constitution? 
they asked this question to the mayor of Chicago, who is a black lesbian woman. And she was asked if she's an originalist, and she kind of laughed, and she goes, like, I am a black gay woman. I was not considered to be a human in any shape or form by the original writers of the Constitution. So when I see somebody like Amy Coney Barrett claiming to be an originalist, but then kind of, you know, also being nominated by somebody who has complete disregard for Constitution, who is somebody who has never read Constitution. I mean, I was reading an interview with Rex Tillerson, who was the first Secretary of State under Trump, and he said a lot of times Trump would ask him, can we do that? And he'll have to go, like, no, that's illegal and it's unconstitutional. So it's just, to me, the whole question of Constitution is just becoming almost laughable. And, you know, there was also that very interesting moment during the confirmation hearing she became a meme. She was asked to show her notes and she pulled up an empty sheet of paper. How did you feel about that moment? Yeah, I mean, even when I'm in the most small, minor meeting with just anyone, like, I'm always taking notes. A lot of people commended her, like, look how smart she is. She isn't taking any notes. But, like, who doesn't take notes? Mm -hmm. Like, that isn't something to commend. I would hope if I'm in front of her at the Supreme Court, she would be taking notes. I mean, she might not need to, but... I mean, it's a sign of respect. It's a way of showing that maybe that person's going to take the notes home. They're going to think about it. They're going to reflect right. on it. Maybe that way... That was another one of those things where I was just like, okay, like, and? Right. <laughs> like, I don't see why this is something we're commending her over. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a cute meme now because people right. are writing things on that notepad for her. Right. But <laughs> it was funny because I literally saw Ben Shapiro who I strongly, strongly dislike. I went in on full on Brooklyn up in that bitch. I strongly dislike him. On Twitter, he reposted that video of her holding up an empty notepad writing Slay Queen, which pissed me off because he's a noted transphobe and homophobe, but using queer language, it was just... But conservatives really loved that moment, and to me, it was just like, okay, it shows that she's smart, and, you know, she might remember all her cases by heart and all that. But also, to me, kind of indicated how empty her questions were to the very empty questions that she was at, especially by the Republican side. I mean, I remember watching when Joni Ernst, who is a senator from Iowa, who is facing a very tough re-election, she literally spent her entire time telling her about her daughter and how much her daughter appreciates her and how she's great for the future of conservative women. And then Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee did the same thing. And I'm like, we're vetting somebody who's going to be making decisions on behalf of the entire country not for the next four years, like with the president, but for the next possibly 30 or 40 years. ACB, as you know, they try to call her, is only 48, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was 87 when she died. So it could be the next 40 years of policymaking. My question to you is, what do you feel this means for the future of the Supreme Court? Both her personal nomination and the illegitimate process surrounding it. So I will say, even though it may feel illegitimate, it's very legitimate. Right. But in terms of the court, it just depends on how long the other justices are there. So A long time, especially considering Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. But there's others, and they could be looking to retire. So my thing is, I can't foresee into the future if Biden gets elected and something happens to another Supreme Court justice. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, you just never know. I hate to say it, my dad, for instance, he died at 53. Stuff happens. So my thing is, yeah, we're looking at a lifetime appointment, but a lifetime isn't a guaranteed number. Right. So, which, I mean, I don't want to be like counting someone else's clock, but I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world. As you are aware, I am a fan of the new. Me too, girl. (laughs) It was Sarah that said it. This is just a call to action to vote. Right. Because in your election, you get to vote for judges. 
I did on my ballot. You'll probably have judges on your ballot. And you vote for the judges that are going to hold your values. I will say on the Alabama ballot, it was a bunch of Republican judges. But vote your values. If you want to see the next round of Supreme Court justices to share your view, well then vote for a president that shares your views. I think this is more of a wake-up call that we need to be getting out there and voting. Yeah, it might not be great for a while. Yeah, some rights that we've taken for granted we might lose, but it's something we're going to have to vote. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to call our elected officials to make state and federal laws that reflect things we want to see our country value. Court backing by the next Democratic government, including President and Senate, yes or no? I lean no. Mm -hmm. I mean, given we have the town hall on in the background, and I have no idea what he's saying, but I'm praying that Biden and Harris do not make a decision. And part of the reason being is, it's like a idle threat, kind of, to the Supreme Court, where it's like, once you start taking policy into your hands, right. then we will take this policy situation, court pack, into our hands. This is something that FDR did. Try to do Well, it was kind of like a threat. It was like, I will pack the courts. And it seemed like it was really going to happen. He was really going to pack the courts. And the courts started like, stop making policy decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of those things where it's a threat. And I think for Biden and Harris, I think they need to continue to keep it as a threat. So I'm going to say now, I'm pretty sure Biden and Harris are honestly no's. But I think they're not going to tell you that they are. I disagree with you. Okay. I actually believe that Kamala is at least open to that idea because she's been told in a previous interview when she ran for president, but before she was announced as the VP, she said that she's very open to that idea. I believe that they should because it's about damn time that the Democrats stand up to Republicans and show that they have, lack of the better term, balls as well. Because the Republicans basically stole the nomination from Barack Obama and Merrick Garland, and, you know, they came up with the most bullshit excuse that, you know, because now the president is of the Senate of the same party, that's why they are pushing um, ACB and it didn't let Merrick Garland go through, but I'm like, nothing in the Constitution says about political parties, and George Washington very famously warned us against political factions, and now we see why. So I think that they should, just because there's way too much at stake with abortion rights, with gay marriage, because, you know, literally the first day the court was in session this year, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito said that they want to overturn it. But it's a very interesting point that you brought up about the future of the Supreme Court and justices understanding what's at stake and kind of like stop being, you know, what they call now judicial activism. Which brings me to my last question. I was watching the confirmation hearings and something about them made me feel a little bit hopeful because ACB kind of repeatedly said that her personal views, you know, her personal fate and her personal socially conservative values were not necessarily affect her decision. And we've seen it this year with the fact that court case that you brought up with, you know, protection for LGBTQ Americans, that was a six to three majority. And it wasn't just the liberal judges, it was also Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts. And Roberts is fine because he kind of goes where he needs to go. And a lot of times he would go with the majority because that's his Supreme Court. But Gorsuch surprised me because, you know, being a Trump appointee, he kind of showed a very progressive and open mind line of thinking, which made me hopeful. So now I want to ask you, what gives you hope that as Americans we will overcome this and hopefully get to the brighter side of things sooner than later? Before 2016, I think we took for granted a lot of things that we 
have. I guess kind of the thing is you never thought about the Supreme Court, or at least we did. But now it's like something that's on our mind. Rights come from there. Protections. A lot of law comes from the Supreme Court, right? So it's kind of one of those things where I think now a lot more people are understanding of that fact. And I think you see a lot of more political activism. You see a lot more people caring about people that aren't necessarily like them. You look out at the protests and you see many different people. But you also see people that are wearing masks. And it's not for themselves, but it's for other people. I know I keep harping on it, but it's kind of like the empathy that you're starting to see kind of manifest in the public. We have a newfound understanding of the other people that were around. And I think that's going to impact the election lot. And I think that's going to impact the next four years, regardless of who gets elected. And I think it'll impact society going forward. I think we all went through something really massive together. And I think even up on that stage, seeing Barrett wear a mask, she's already doing more than the man that appointed her. True. So do I think she's like the Antichrist? Absolutely not. Do I necessarily think I agree with all of her views? No, but my thing is, I'm not going to write her off until she writes off everyone's rights, you know? Because, I mean, there was O'Connor. She didn't let us down. In other ways, maybe, but... (laughs) Right. But it's kind of one of those things where I think I feel more empathetic. I think a lot of other people feel more empathetic. You can kind of see it around you. And I think that also has impacted even the people on the other side that you oftentimes don't agree with. I know Facebook is like a hellhole. That's the anti-Christ. <laughs> the website itself. But it's kind of like, even on there, the people that I disagree with, I can tell that usually they have the beliefs they have, and it has a lot to do with misinformation, but it's because of their concern for someone else. And yeah, we can disagree on who they care about and who they don't, but the fact of the matter is they care about something or right. someone else. And that's a level of empathy that I felt I didn't see the other side just a few years ago. Hopefully a lot of that empathy comes from the fact that as a world we encountered a lot of loss, yeah. loss of life, loss of property, loss of jobs, just a lot of pain, and nothing makes people empathetic like pain. Thank you, Corey, for being a guest in my podcast and welcoming me into your beautiful and comfy home. Thank you for coming. And to all of our listeners, I really hope you're staying hopeful and optimistic and please wear a mask please wash your hands hashtag vote because voting gives you an incredible incredible amount of power and the more people vote and the more people get out there the better things will be thank you for listening and i'll see you next week bye bye bye